All right. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Acts chapter 1, please. Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 15 through 26. And the message entitled, What About Matthias? Um, There are so many things that sound good and right at times until we examine them to the scriptures. Um, each of us has fallen into error where we said, well, this is what it's saying, and this, or because we heard that this is what the, that text says, and then as we study, we find out we were wrong, or the teaching was wrong. All of us have done that. Man's opinions and speculations must always be judged by the scriptures, and the choosing of Matthias to take the place of Judas Iscariot is one of those topics that everyone has their own view. Some say Matthias was not the twelve apostle due to the fact that the, the, the manner they chose was lots, as it was in the Old Testament. So they're saying it's archaic, it, it, it's New Testament, they shouldn't have used it that way. Others say Matthias was the twelve apostle um, to replace Judas Iscariot, and this legitimate. And still others say that Paul was the twelve apostle as God confronted him on the road to Damascus and that he was the one that took Judas Iscariot's place. Certainly, um, whatever side we choose, it's not going to affect your salvation. You're not going to go to hell if you choose the wrong one, okay? But we want to make sure we're as close as possible. You ever remember being in, in kindergarten and they give you tracing paper? I don't know what they did today in school, but tracing paper and you have an artwork underneath it? And because you're not so good at printing or writing as a little kid you're trying to stay as close as possible but sometimes you get off but that line brings you back in all right this will work to do put everything to the scriptures so we say as close to that line as possible okay and when we're wrong and we find out we're wrong we correct it it's simple nothing wrong with saying you know what i was a bonehead that was wrong no problem but If after we have examined the scriptures and they prove our theology to be wrong, then again, it is wisdom to just correct it and say, I never saw it that way. Or you know what? I missed this point. And and you, if you've been with me for 36 years, you know that we've done that two or three or four times. Okay? It's just simple. Now, the account is found here in chapter 1 of the book of Acts. Um, It reveals how Matthias was chosen. So let me read verse 15 to 26. It says, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of the name was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and, and, and obtained a part of This ministry. Now, this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst it open, and the middle of all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called, in their own language, meaning the Greek, a seldoma, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, 
of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed to Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in the ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their laws, and the law fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So the way he was chosen is described as follows. First, in verse 15 through 20, the choosing of Matthias was according to Scripture. Secondly, 21 to 23, the choosing of Matthias was according to certain conditions. And thirdly, the choosing of Matthias was according to the Lord. Verse 24 through 26. Let's begin here with the choosing of Matthias was according to Scripture. And this is always the most important. If we cannot put our finger on something that's scriptural in context, we have no right to practice it or teach it or say it. It is God's word that's the authority over our lives. Notice Peter was the spokesman in verse 15. He stood up in the midst of the disciples there, and he was one of uh, who was presiding over the meeting here. He is the dominant character in the book of Acts for the first 12 chapters. He rules the first 12 chapters. He is said to be among the disciples, meaning a student or a pupil. That's what the word disciple means. Notice Peter was one of the 120 disciples, and it says in the upper room. Now, we don't know exactly what upper room. Some of you have gone to Israel with us, and we visit the traditional upper room. That could have been it. Some say it was in the temple. It could have been it. We don't know. It was in an upper room. Um, the 11, notice, had returned from the Mount of Olives, as the Lord Jesus had instructed them to wait for the promise of the Father that would descend from heaven in verse 1 and verse 4 of chapter 1, here of Acts. So they returned according to the instructions of Jesus. The 11 apostles are identified by name in verse 13. So you cannot confuse them, okay? They were continuing with one accord, it says, in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren, verse 14 says. In other words, the brothers of Jesus did not believe in Jesus as Messiah until after the resurrection. John makes that very clear. We've seen that before, okay? By the way, Mary was there. Just a little side note. They weren't there praying to Mary. They were there with Mary and they were praying to Jesus. Just a little note, okay? 120 was the minimum number required by the Jewish law to establish a community with its own council. Now notice in 16 and 17, Peter here now was quoting scripture, very important. Peter declared that the scripture had to be fulfilled. He recognized that the event that had taken place had been foretold in the past. He also implies that all prophetic scripture will be fulfilled by virtue of its very nature. If God has predicted something, 
as going to happen, then it will happen and it will confirm what said was going to happen. Whether it happens in my lifetime or not, it doesn't matter. If it's prophecy by nature, it has a fulfillment. The proclamation, the fulfillment. Now, notice Peter qualified the scripture to be that which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas there in verse 16. David was the instrument, the human instrument. God speaking through him. When God does that, then the person being used is a simple vessel. The words being brought forth or recorded are God's inspired and errant infallible words. You sometimes sign a check with a blue ink pen, other times with a black ink pen, maybe with a pink ink pen. Who's signing the check, the pen or you? They're just instruments, right? And you can read the epistles and you can pick up the personality and character of Paul different from Peter or from James. But yet the revelation is intact and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. No man speaks under divine inspiration except by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. No amount of education can substitute or replace the Holy Spirit's enabling or anointing. The problem is that too many people choose the ministry as a profession. And so they go to seminary and they get educated. And that school gives them a degree on paper. They may even send them and recommend them to a location or a church or denomination. But listen to me. If God has not anointed you and sent you and enabled you, you will be a detriment to the people under you. It's that simple. Your education is not the important thing. Your talents and ability are not the important thing. That you have a degree and someone recommends you is not the important thing. The important thing is that you have been called and anointed and enabled and sent by God. And time will reveal that that is true. Now, I'm not against education. I've told you often, get all you can. Then when you get it, get over it. It's just that simple. No mistake can be made to his exact fulfillment regarding Judas as Peter is making reference to Psalms 41.9. Notice at the end of 16, Peter described the treachery of Judas due to his personal affiliation with the 12 apostles at the end of 16 and 17. That's the connection. He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Look at 16. Judas, as you know, drew near, and the sign was a kiss, and the word kiss there in the Greek is repeatedly. It wasn't just, it was just kissing, kissing, kissing. That was the sign. And Jesus says, Judas, do you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Ooh. When you call someone a Judas, 
It's not a complete stranger that's ripped you off. It's not someone that's pulled a fast one on you. It's someone who's close to you. A wife, a husband, a close friend. And they betray you. That's who we call the Judas. By the way, Judases are in the church, not outside the church. Wow. Notice he was um, numbered with them, the 12, and obtained a part of that ministry. Judas was chosen after an entire night in prayer by Jesus in Luke 6, 12 through 16. Now, do you think that Jesus may have made a mistake? Do you think when Judas came and kissed him repeatedly, Jesus said, Doggone it, why did I choose him? No. He knew exactly who he chose. In fact, he says, one of you is a devil. John six seventy. But it was prophetic one would betray him. Now we'll get into the fact that God may can betray him. Let's not pick that up right now, okay? <laughs> but it was no surprise to Jesus. Notice when you get to 18 and 19, Peter um, was calling to mind the consequences that came to Judas according to the scripture. And the line here and the importance is according to scripture again. Peter pointed out the end result of the wages of iniquity, the purchase of a field. The references to the 30 pieces of silver Judas had given to betray Jesus. And after seeing that what he had done, that he had been condemned, he was remorseful and he returned back to the chief elders and to return the money in Matthew 27, 3. And Judas said to them, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You've made your deal with us, you know. See to it yourself. Then he threw the money, the pieces of 30 pieces of silver, into the temple. And he departed, Matthew 27, 4 and 5 tells us. Now the chief priests, in their hypocrisy, they could not put that money back into the money coffer. Because this was blood money, right? So they purchased a field for strangers to be buried in. Matthew 27, 6 through 7. The epitome of hypocrisy. Jesus continually rebuked the Pharisees and the scribes. Read Matthew 23. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6 and 7. And the greatest crime is within the church, not outside the church. People that don't know God, they're lost, blind, and evil, just like you and I were. But once you're born again and you know exactly what you're doing, the greater crime is inside the church. Men who set themselves up. Men who abuse the people. Men who manipulate the people. Men who merchandise the people. Men who declare they're righteous, but they're not. Now, we're not talking about sinlessness. We're not talking about perfection. Just follow me around for five minutes. It won't take you long. But we are talking about there's an absolute transformation of your life. You're not what you used to be. You still have sin nature, but you're not playing games. When you fall short, you cry out to God. He picks you up. You keep walking. Make that adjustment again, right? 
It's an abomination to God. It, it just drives him crazy. <laughs> it's throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. Now, notice still in 18, Peter pointed out the suicide of Judas as a result of his betrayal and how he fell headlong and he burst open in the middle, causing his intestines or entrails to gush out. Now, some people will look at this fact and then compare the Gospels and they'll say, well, there's a contradiction. See, the Bible contradicts them. No, 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 listen. The Bible does not contradict itself. When you have parallel passages, you put them all together. And what they do is like, will you ever do those puzzles? You get the frame first, then you start working in to get, and the more the picture gets clear, the easier it is to put the pieces. It's another piece to the picture. Not contradiction, but supplementation. Listen carefully. He tells us what happened after he hung himself. He's described as committing suicide by hanging, Matthew 25, 27, verse 5. He went out and hung himself after he threw the money into the temple. All we can do is speculate that either it had to be a high place if it broke right away, that he tied on the tree, jumped off, and the rope broke. And because of the length of drop that his body gushed down, or that he hung himself and then because of the process of time, his body bloated, as you know what happens when you're dead. And then, because of the fall was long, a good enough distance, then it gushed open. So we're not sure. But it tells us he hung himself, and when his body hit the ground for whatever reason, his guts came out. It's giving us greater information. It's not a contradiction. Now, Peter, notice, in verse 19, pointed out, that it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem and the field is called, in the Greek, a keldama. That is a field of blood. So, when Luke wrote this, when Matthew wrote it, while they're living, everybody knew this was the name of the field, affiliated with the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. Matthew confirms this fact and that the field had been called the field of blood as he was writing in Matthew 27, verse 8. And Peter again quotes this event as a fulfilled prophecy. Notice that. Confirmed by, by him, tying the 30 pieces of silver for the betrayal of Jesus with the purchase of the field in Matthew 27, verse 9 and 10. So again, you must put your finger on what is in context, the objective truth that is clearly being stated. Don't read into it. Just take what it says. By the way, Matthew, there 27, he quotes Jeremiah. But the prophecy is found in Zechariah, chapter 11, verse 12 and 13. So people say, ah, see, an heir. Well... Some point out that the book of Zechariah formed part of the scroll which began with the prophet Jeremiah, and therefore it bore the name of Jeremiah. Possibility. But even if we have no explanation, 
if what we have before us is God's inspired word, and we verify that all the time, particularly in prophecy, and I can understand so much of it is clearly fulfilled prophecy accurately, why would one little thing that would seemingly not correlate in my mind altogether destroy everything that I do understand? So I never allow what I don't understand to destroy what I do understand. Simple principle, right? I'm not approaching the Word of God to prove it's the Word of God. I'm approaching the Word of God because it is the Word of God. That's the difference. Certainly, Jeremiah used the potter's house and the purchase of a field in chapter 18 and 32, if you remember when we went through it. And so, you have that record here. Now, look at verse 20. Peter was again quoting scripture for the replacement of Judas. Peter quotes two Psalms, Psalm 69:25 and 109, verse 18. Peter uses the word office, episcopin, which means a position of an overseer as an elder. You get the word episkopos, an overseer. It describes the function of an elder. You get the denomination, the Episcopalian church from it. By the ruling elders, they oversee, the overseers. That's what it means. And so Peter is saying that nothing took the Father or Jesus by surprise. All this was foreknown and prophesied about. The prophecy about Judas does not mean that God forced Judas to do the evil. Only that Judas would do the evil. For if God forced Judas to do the evil, how could God judge Judas for doing the evil and hold him accountable? God would be unjust. Unholy, not good. But because he knows what you will do, he can tell you what you're going to do a week from now at 11.05 a.m. Not because he forced you to do it, but because he knows the end from the beginning. Now, we have a problem with the future. We even have a problem with the past. We doctor it up. (laughs) How much more the future? So if a person believes God predestines people to commit evil without ever giving them a choice, how do you explain the attribute of holiness of God? Justice, kind. It's a contradiction. The only way God can remain holy, just, and good is that you made that choice on your own because of your sin nature. And God just knew about it, and he just declared it. Simple. Judas chose to betray Jesus. God knew the heart of Judas and told it before it happened. So when it happened, you would know that God alone can predict the future. Simple. Prophecy is God's uh, fingerprint has been said throughout history. No one else can be credited with um, its proclamation or its fulfillment. Now you have people like Gene Dixon and other pronosticators, uh, Nostradamus, but they're all general predictions. And they're not 100% accurate. Here's a qualification to be a prophet of God. You have to be 100% accurate or they were to stone you to death with boulders. 
Anybody want to take that up? Hmm. Listen to um, John F. Wolverd in the uh, opening pages of his introduction of this book, Every Prophecy of the Bible. And he states the following, I'm quoting, quote, In history of the church, the eschatological or prophetic portions of scriptures have suffered more from inadequate interpretation than any other major theological subject. The reason for this is that the church turns aside from a normal and grammatical literal interpretation of prophecy to one that is non-literal and subjective to the caprice of an interpreter. You and I have seen a lot of this in terms of prophecy. People see some headlines in the newspapers or something happens over in Europe. And they say, this is fulfilled prophecy. And they proclaim it. A while back, there was the red moons. How many of you guys heard about those red moons? And everybody was telling me, oh, X, you know, you should get in there. You know, we'll find out if they're false prophets or true prophets after that day. Guess what? False prophets. Simple. Simple. Prophecy is one of God's proofs that he has spoken through men and challenges other gods even to predict the future. Isaiah from chapter 40 to the end of Isaiah, he says, listen, I'm a God. I'm the, from the beginning. I'm the first. I'm the last. I've, I've walked up, up this universe and I've never bumped into any other God. But just in case you're out there, tell me of things before they happen so when they happen, I can declare you God. No one's ever taken up upon it. Not at all. In fact, Isaiah 44, 6 through 8 says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, the captain of the armies of heaven. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let these show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declare it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Simple. Isaiah 34, 16 says, Search the book of the Lord. That's the Bible. And read. Not one of these shall fail. Not one shall lack her mate. For my mouth has commanded it. And the spirit has gathered them. So whatever it is in nature or context that God says he will do, he will do. He says in the last days he would bring the nation of Israel back into the land. Everybody scoffed it. Until 1948, May 14, when Israel became a nation for the third time. They scoffed it. They laughed at it. Ah, the Bible. That's right. The Bible. The scriptures are never to be handled in a careless manner. But um, with the greatest of integrity, knowing that it is divine revelation. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, our text in the conference yesterday. All scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable doctrine, correction, instruction, that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. You want to be a doctor? Go to medical school. You want to be a liar? Go to law school. 
You want to be a Christian? Get in the Bible. Am I clear? Simple. The inspiration of Scripture guarantees the inerrancy and infallibility of it. Second Peter chapter 1, 20-21 says that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin. The word interpretation is wrong there. They did not speak of their own impulse or interpretation. Their own source, their own origin. But they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So what they spoke was God's inerrant, infallible word. Wow. Listen to the words of Jesus at the Olivet Discourse regarding the Great Tribulation and His coming. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Not one yo, not one tittle. The markings, do you know how to pronounce the Hebrew writings? Jesus never implied or taught that there was heirs in the scripture. He talked about Adam, about Eve, about Satan, about Sodom and Gomorrah, Jonah. <laughs> Accurate information, God's revelation. The prophetic fulfillment of Judas by Peter is an important principle. Teaching the believer to be scriptural in all that is done and practice. A good Berean, Acts 17, 11, To examine if those things are so. Simple. So the choosing of Matthias was according to scripture. This is the foundation. Secondly, look at verse 21 through 23. The choosing of Matthias was according to Certain conditions. The first condition was that it had to be one from among them who had accompanied them at all the time the Lord Jesus went in and out among the apostles. Verse 21. Peter came to a conclusion by the word therefore. Based on, in view of the fact what precedes the scriptures predicted Judas' part or replacement, one must be chosen. He knew there were many who had done this, including the 70. Send out by two. Judas was sent out with somebody. Judas prayed for people. Judas saw people get healed as he prayed. Judas probably raised some people from the dead. Read the context when the, the 70 were sent out. Peter's indicating us, the 120 who were present. Then notice in verse 22, the second condition had two parts. The individual had to have been from the beginning of the baptism of John to the day when Jesus was taken up from them up into heaven from the Mount of Olives. Verse 22. One who had been with them for three and a half years of ministry with Jesus. So the individual had to be one who must be a witness with them of the resurrection or the resurrected Christ. So the algebility now narrows from 120 to fewer because not all of them saw that. Notice 23. These two conditions produce two men for their choosing. They proposed Joseph, which means let him add, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice. 
People say, why all these Jews? They have all these two, three, four names. Well, we do the same too in culture. You know? His, name's, his name is Juan Martinez Romero. But they call him Chucho. Okay? We do the same. Notice. They propose Matthias also. Which means gift of Yahweh. Or given by Yahweh. Either one. Matthias could have become bitter at this point. Stop and think about it. And resentful. When Jesus had prayed all night. An entire night. And he didn't choose him. But he chose Judas Iscariot. He could have said, you know, I, I, I'm done with this Jesus, you know. I mean, uh, I mean, Judas is pulling the wool over his eyes. He's a rat. He steals from the box, the, 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 the treasury. Matthew could have thrown the rejection in the face of the apostles. But he didn't do either. Matthew could have started his own little division. But he did not. Now all these three things I mentioned happens all the times in churches. Because people think more highly of themselves. And so they begin divisions. They slander, they murmur. They exalt themselves. And they grab 10, 15, 50 people and go start a church at the next block. Happens all the time, ladies and gentlemen. And the world is looking at us. Wow. But you know why Matthias didn't do that? He was a servant of God. If you're a servant of God, you're not here to impress any man or woman. You're here because God has brought you here and you know this is the place he's put you to serve. And you serve the Lord, not any other person. And you understand that clearly. So you don't fall into the trappings of the flesh as people exalt you, provoke you, or your own flesh, or the enemy. But you have the mind of Christ. Let the mind be in you, which is Christ Jesus, who didn't think himself robbery to be equal with God, but he came of no reputation, he emptied himself of his glory, he became a servant of all, even unto the death of the cross. Wow. That's our master. He washed feet. Hmm. The choosing of these men were not their own bias or Peter's cantankerous choice, but one of reverence for the will of God. That's important. When you have men like this serving, it's great protection to the people that gather together. In 1752, a group of men, including John Wesley, who were nicknamed Methodists, signed a covenant which everyone uh, might hang on their study wall, every person. 
The six articles are solemnly in agreement to follow as, fall, as, it, as I read them. But Methodists, they call them Methodists because they gather to study the Word of God, confess their sins, to pray, to, to visit the orphans and the widows and the, those in prison. That's why they're called Methodists. They were very methodical. Okay? Now this is what they wrote. Listen to their integrity of the Wesleyan movement. First, that we will not listen or willingly ignore or inquire after ill concern one or another. Second, that if we do hear any ill of each other, we will not be forward to believe it. Wow. Third, that as soon as possible, we will communicate what we heard by speaking or writing to the person concerned. Fourth, that until we have done this, we will not write or speak a syllable of it to any other person. Fifth, that neither will we mention it after we have done this to any other person. Sixth, that we will not make any exception to any of these rules unless we think ourselves absolutely obliged in conference. Wow. You know why? Because once the cat is out of the bag, the destruction is done. Uh, this little serpent, the beast behind the ivory cage, is the most destructive thing we possess. We're not to bring an accusation before an elder, before two or three witnesses with credible evidence. Today, everybody flips their lip. Everybody accuses and shoots their mouth off. People are slandered up and down, maligned on the internet. Lives are ruined. Amazing. When a church has a man of integrity and character, the people and work of God flourishes. But tragically, too often the condition of the church is void of such men. And therefore, the world says, why should I be a Christian? Go out in the streets and ask the average Joe what they think about the church. What comes to their mind when it's church or Christians? Money hungry? Hypocrites. Should we blame them? No, we can't blame them. Hmm. The conditions for choosing men to serve in the church are found in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And they should never be watered down or ignored by putting men in the positions of leadership. Too often what takes place is... Um, a pastor or the leadership will find a hole in the ministry that they need to fill. And they will just put someone in there because they're talented or famous or because they're the biggest tither. Well, I won't know who you are because I don't know about it. I don't look at your money. But that's always a mistake. You're to look for godly spiritual men to oversee the house of God. 
1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. Those are the requirements. You read them. Do not water them down. Do not ignore them. And none of those requirements means that a person is sinless or perfection. Never. But they're godly. Now, the condition for all men in the church is to be those who have the highest character. In Acts chapter 6, it says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, which we may appoint over this business. That's when the Grecian Hebrews, uh, the Grecian Hellenists that were Hebrews, were living like Greeks, were being uh, favored supposedly over the Hebrews. They were just back and forth. And, and, and Peter and they said, no, that's not going on. And that's what he's referring to. And they were handling this, but he says, we will give ourselves to the word in prayer. So you choose out these men of character, godly, and we'll put them over the affair. The precaution is against a new person in the faith that would want to be placed into ministry right away. First Timothy 3, 6 says, Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Sometimes people, well, you know, I want to go and ministry. How long have you been born again? Well, a week. A month. Or even a year. And so often people are put into ministry because they're famous. You guys, I mean, there's many musicians that have come to the Lord and they thrust them right out there and they destroy them. Bob Dylan. Have you ever heard his album? You can't write an album like that if you're not born again. But they thrust them out. They stumble them. Shame on the church. Those men and women who we place in ministry are people who have time, maturity, confirm character, and we see their passion and their work for the Lord. When you're looking for a babysitter for your children, you just go down the Home Depot and get somebody on the corner. Juan, come here. No. What's someone a character? The credentials of a man are always those, listen, of his home. Titus 1 6, 1 Timothy 3 5. This is the failure of many churches and leaders and pastors and boards. They look for talent and ability and credentials and degrees. All that means nothing if your home's not in order. My credentials that stand before you for 36 years is not because I'm good looking, that's far from the thing, or because I'm charismatic, I'm not, or because of my education. But the requirement is my home. Do I love my wife? Do I care for my wife? Do I take care of my home? Do I take care of my children? Do I deal with my children biblically? That's my qualification. And tragically, the church has put everything else before it. And that's why the church is run like a corporation and a company today. It's a big mistake. Listen to Titus and Timothy. If a man is blameless, 
the husband of one wife means one wife at a time. In other words, you're, if there's a death, you can remarry. If there's a divorce, it has to be by adultery. And then you can move to the second wife. Okay? That's what it's talking about. Having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Simple. Simple. So the choosing of Matthias was according to certain conditions. They're given to us here. The baptism, the resurrection, right? Very specific. Now notice third and last in verse 24 to 26, the choosing of Matthias was according to the Lord. In verse 24, the apostles prayed for the Lord to choose one of the two. The word prayer identifies prayer in general, but this kind of prayer has the idea of worship and reverence it is never used towards man. It's always used for God. The content of the prayer reveals this clearly. The one being addressed is you, O Lord. It's referring to Jesus Christ. The confidence in their prayer is that he knows the heart of all men. Often our prayers is information. Lord, you know, and you know how you know. Yeah. I didn't know that. Thank you for that information. He knows everything. Nothing escapes God, not our words, not our deeds, not our thoughts, not our motives. Notice the petition. Show which of these two you have chosen. The apostles are not going to make the decisions. They want God to make the decision. This is their prayer. So look at 25. The apostles identified him. As the substitute of Judas. The purpose was clear. To take part in this ministry and apostleship. From which Judas by transgression fell. Whatever choice was revealed. It was to replace the ministry of Judas. Whoever was chosen. He would be the 12th apostle. In place of Judas. Notice the permanent place of Judas is described. That he might go to his own place. Judas was not predestined to be lost. He chose of his own free will. Otherwise God would be unjust and unkind and unholy. Judas went to his own place because he was a devil. But not by God's doing. Every person in hell. This morning. Knows they're there because of their evil and their sin. Not because God is unjust. Every person in heaven this morning right now. Knows they're there by the grace of God. Because he cleansed them through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not because they deserve it. Wow. Notice verse 26. The apostles witnessed the Lord's choice then. They cast their lots. And the lot fell on Matthias. He was God's gift to the eleven, even as his name indicates. He was God's choice. Notice the text says that he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Eleven plus one, twelve. 
All right? Some point out that lots were the Old Testament manner by which they made decisions, as Proverbs 16.33 says. Therefore, this proves that this manner was invalid, and therefore Matthias really is not the real 12th apostle. The danger in this argument is to ignore the fact that Peter has quoted Scripture three times of prophecy and fulfillment, which would accuse him of being unbiblical in speaking apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's dangerous. The argument also opens up the opportunity for others to give subjective interpretation when the content reveals objective truth that has an obvious and clear interpretation. He's not only given us the prediction, but the interpretation, the fulfillment. So the idea that Paul was God's choice as the 12th apostle is hard to prove from the scriptures, as some people say. The appointed aspect of Matthias here as the 12th apostle was accepted by the church and acknowledged as a choice of God. Notice chapter 2, verse 14. Listen carefully. But Peter, Peter is one person, standing up with the 11, 11 and 1 is 12. <laughs> All right? This is chapter 2, verse 14. Raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judah, all you who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Twelve there, my number, after the election, the choosing by God. Then in chapter 6, verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude. The what? The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. 6-2. So, Matthias is the twelve apostle according to Scripture. End of speculation. Paul never, by the way, called himself the twelve apostle, but in fact called himself one born out of due season, like an abortion in 1 Corinthians 15.8. Paul, in the greatest defense that he had of his apostleship with the Galatians, that they had been deceived by the Judaizers, he could have pulled that trump card. Hey, I was the twelve apostle. I took Jesus Christ's place. He never did. In fact, he says, I lack nothing of the twelve. Those who seem to be something, they're nothing to me. Whoa. I like Paul. More than that, Paul did not meet the qualifications. He hadn't been with Jesus from the baptism of John, right? Though he did see him in the resurrection. And he was taught by Jesus for three years in Arabia. Galatians 1 tells us. So he doesn't meet the qualifications. So the argument that Matthias is never mentioned ever again in Acts to disqualify and verify that the lots were really not right is a mute argument because you're going to tell me because Matthias has never mentioned again so now you're taking the absence of scriptures to verify your own opinion what do you do when seven of the nine apostles are never mentioned in the rest of the book of Acts <laughs> do you see our stupid logic it can get us in trouble we must stick to the scriptures the will of God for the man of God, 
is the crucial importance for the church of God. A minister praying over a child, apparently dying, said the following, quote, If it be thy will, spare the poor mother's soul yearning for her beloved child, exclaimed, It must be his will. I cannot bear ifs. The minister stopped. As time went on, contrary to the expectation, the child recovered. But the mother, after almost suffering, martyred them by him while being a young man. Lived to see him hang before he was 21. God's will is perfect, ladies and gentlemen. God forbid that we settle for God's second best. You remember Hezekiah? Hezekiah. He sends Isaiah, he says, tell Hezekiah, I'm taking him home. Get his house in order. So Isaiah tells him. Hezekiah cries like a little girl. God tells Isaiah, go back and tell him. I'm going to give him 15 extra years. Do you know what happened in those 15 extra years? The most evil king was born Manasseh. Would to God that Hezekiah would have just gone home. God's best or second best? God's perfect will or his permissive will? God's will for you is best. As horrible and as unfair you may think God is, it will make you more like him and less like you and keep you out of trouble. Wow. John Livingston, Livingston said, I had rather be in the heart of Africa in the will of God than on the throne of England out of the will of God. My son just moved up north. He tells me, Dad, leave the Iron Curtain, come to America. He knows I can't. I don't like the inner city. But I love it because this is where God's put me. I can't be anywhere else. Where am I going to go? I don't have my own choosing, ladies and gentlemen. And I don't mean to say I'm so good and you know I've I haven't sacrificed anything. This is what I've sacrificed. Ready? Hell. I have not sacrificed or suffered anything for Christ. But I know that I know that I cannot leave this pulpit. That's important. Because the will of God is the best for you. When we pray for God's will, we should um, be willing to accept it when it comes and not be like fair weather Christians. The Lord taught his disciples to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven in Matthew 6 10, right? Priority. The choices of God are based on his perfect wisdom and sovereignty. And the clay cannot whine 
or complain against and exalt itself against the potter. Romans 9 says. God's will is the best for my life and yours. Here's a simple principle. Matthew 6.33 But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. All these things is what precedes your food, your clothing, everything else. The problem is we put all those things before the kingdom of God. Well, if God, if you will do this, I will follow you. Don't be a stranger. I don't need you. As if God needs you and me. We've got it backwards. God is so good, so patient, so loving. I would never put up with me like he's put up with me. Never. The choosing of Matthias was according to the Lord Jesus. Don't let anybody tell you indifferent. And so here we have the account of Matthias and how it was that he was chosen. The choosing of Matthias was according to the scriptures. The choosing of Matthias was according to certain conditions. And the choosing of Matthias was according to the Lord Jesus Christ. The case is settled. The scriptures went out. Not opinions, not speculation, but the clear objective truth of God's revelation. Be a good Berean. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We thank you for your grace, your love, and we do desire your perfect will. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to that, knowing that you know what's best. As you're praying, if you're here this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe you're over the internet. Right where you sit, you can accept Christ Jesus right now. This is your prayer to him, not to us, to accept him and to forgive you of all your sins. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.